And we are recording with the one, the only, Mr. Howard Bloom for episode 1008 and the first episode with you in my new studio. Not that you're physical here, so I guess that doesn't really matter. But Howard, do the introduction. Do the thing. Well, okay. So uh, my favorite quote, which I should never repeat myself because it sounds egocentric and narcissistic, is uh, Channel 4 Britain, which said that Howard Bloom is the uh, the Sir Isaac Newton, Sigmund Freud, Charles Darwin, and Einstein of the 21st century. And uh, I try to encompass as many fields as knowledge of knowledge as I possibly can. Um, I've been doing it since I was 10 years old and started a microbiology and theoretical physics and um, and the purpose of following all your curiosities at once, something I call omnology, um, is to be able to pull out and see the big picture that the specialists who are tunneled like gophers in a landscape and can only see the dirt around them, it's to fly over all the gopher holes and see them as pixels in a larger landscape, a big picture. And that's what I've been doing. And I've been working on uh, understanding the universe from the Big Bang to what's going on in our brains as we're having this conversation um, since I was approximately 12 years old. Um, and that's a long time by now. And to oh, and I'm the author of seven books and I'm working on my eighth. And mm -hmm. I appear on 545 radio stations uh, every Wednesday night at 106 in the morning on the highest rated overnight talk radio show in North America, coast to coast AM. And you worked with Michael Jackson. And I worked with, oh yes, I forgot about that. So at one point I jumped ship from science in order to do what uh, is called participant observer science, um, which is a name that the anthropologists who used to go visit a distant, very unlike us tribe and would blend into the tribe and would try to absorb the very feelings of the tribe. Uh, Margaret Mead, one of these anthropologists, was so successful in absorbing the Samoan culture, as she was on the island of Samoa studying the local tribes, that they actually made her a tribal chief. Um, and I did that with a field I knew nothing about, um, starting in about 1971, um, rock and roll. And for me, it was a perfect opportunity. I've been hunting, not just for the details of the physical universe and cosmology and uh, chemistry and things of that sort. I've been hunting for the ecstatic experience since I was 12 years old, because it is an aspect of the human experience that's profoundly important and hence needs to have a place in our science. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not saying you can do science via the as the uh, ecstatic experience, the transcendent experience, but you have to be aware of the fact that this is a universe that can produce it's such that, an experience. Yeah, with that, a brain that can and a psyche that can produce that kind of experience. So I've been trying to hunt that down since I was 12, and um, and I managed to uh, I. I stepped aside from my normal science to do about almost 20 years of field work in a field I knew nothing about, popular culture. And in the process, I founded the biggest PR firm in the music industry. Talk about being made a chief um, in the tribe that you're studying. And I worked with Michael Jackson, Prince, Bob Marley, Bette Midler, ACDC, Aerosmith, Kiss Queen, Run DMC, Billy Joel, Billy Idol, Paul Simon, Peter Gabriel, David Byrne, uh, ZZ Top, people like that. And it was an amazing experience, whether you're a scientist or not. But if you come at it from the perspective of momnology, trying to put together the big picture of the universe and everything that's in it, including the human experience, um, it is a phenomenal opportunity. No other, to the best of my knowledge, no other scientist has ever done a field expedition of this sort, ever of the of the grand the grand theory of it all how it all yeah because one because when you're in rock and roll um here i was hunting for the gods inside of us hunting for the ecstatic experience 
And guess what happened when I went to my first Fleetwood Mac concert at Carnegie Hall um, in 1973? Um, I suddenly realized I was in the land where the gods are. Mm -hmm. I suddenly saw the ecstatic experience take over an audience and the band on stage and meld them. And I had an experience I've almost certainly told you about in previous episodes. When I was 16. The dancing. Yeah, right. So I had an experience where I uh, had an out-of-body experience. And I watched myself on a stage performing for an audience. And I saw that audience's energy, the individuals, coalesce into a big collective blob. And I saw that blob reach a pseudopod out to me and send its energy through me. And there I was on the ceiling watching this. And I saw that energy from the audience be transmogrified somewhere around my head and then flow back out again to the audience in a continuous reverberatory feedback loop. And when I was finished, something utterly bizarre happened. The kids in my high school hated me. But um, they surged down to the foot of the stage. They'd never done this before in my time in that high school. They surged down to the foot of the stage. They picked me up off the stage. And they carried me out of the auditorium um, on their shoulders and carried me all the way to the building up the hill where we had our classes and then finally put me down. It was extraordinary. And Tommy, strangers of the sound, I didn't realize that this was the core of the ecstatic experience I had been seeking until about three years ago. Hmm. I mean, yes, I use this all the time in working with my rock stars because it's what they go through. And um, and pulling those gods inside that come to life only when you're on stage in front of an audience and introducing them to the hello, how are you? Fine. Thank you very much. Self, the conscious self. Was one of my tasks. That's why I called what I invented piece by piece, step by step, secular shamanism. So um, so, yes, I, I have worked with <laughs> plus. I've worked with the 11th president of India, with whom I partnered for four years on promoting uh, solar power harvested in space and transmitted down to Earth, which would solve all. It would bring us to net zero. Mm -hmm. It would get rid of the use of all um, fossil fuels. Um, and I'm still um, working, doing my best to have some influence getting that idea across. And I've worked with Buzz Aldrin and I've worked with all kinds of other people, Newt Gingrich of all people, and I'm a Democrat and a liberal. <laughs> so I've had a lot of a, a big variety of unusual human experiences um, that add to what I am as a scientific thinker. I think <clears throat> what you're talking about, uh, omnology, it's um, I, I, I interviewed um, the, the author for, um, uh, for General, former Secretary of Defense General Mattis, for his book "Call Sign Chaos," it's a former Marine named Bing West, and um, <clears throat> he has two quotes in that book that really got me thinking. And uh, the first is, "If you have not read hundreds of books, hundreds of historical books, uh, you are functionally illiterate." And the second quote from General Mattis is, "Um." intuition is subconscious pattern recognition nothing more nothing less and those really got me thinking and this was about a year and a half ago so starting in august 2021 i actually tried to like mechanize my intake of information because i started thinking the more i read the more patterns i can recognize like you know, when we fill out CAPTCHAs, you know, are you a robot? You know, click on all the stop signs. That's also being fed. There's a dual use. One, it's making sure you're a human, but they're also using your pattern recognition to feed into the mind of to, of AI, whichever company's researching it. Right. And so it kind of clicked. I remember I was on the treadmill one day and I was like, what if I just read hundreds of historical books? Like not not fiction, not, you know, sci-fi, just historical books would I start to be able to pick out patterns and then like putting multiple cameras around a room to get a three-dimensional image. You don't want to put them all in one spot. You want to put them in as many different spots as you can and then fill in the spot. So I was like, it would need to be everything I could possibly learn. And since August, 2021, 
I've gone through 85 nonfiction books. So a little over one a week and how I do it is kind of what we talking about before we start recording. And it's, you have to mechanize it, right? You, you right. can get, ex- it's like going to the gym on the first day of the new year. Like you can do right. that. You, yeah, you're, you can get an A on your first assignment. Like right. wait until you've been three months into the semester and you're hungover and you're like, yeah, I'll take a C. So I was like, I need to mechanize this. And so I only do an hour a day. I only do one hour of listening to an audiobook. I do it at 2x speed, so it's two hours, but I just do it an hour a day because I know I can do that hour, even if I'm depressed, even if I'm anxious, even if I haven't slept enough, even if I'm going and visiting family for Thanksgiving, even if I'm hungover, whatever, I know I can do the hour. And because of that, I've gone through more books in the last year and a half than I have gone through in the preceding three decades. And although I feel like I'm at the base of a mountain, I do feel like I'm starting to, you know, right now I'm reading books about silicon production and 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 5G towers designed in China. And two weeks ago, I was, you know, reading about Krupp, the arm industry of oh, Germany. Oh, that's a great book, The yeah. Arms of Krupp. Yeah, yeah. It's a fantastic. Yeah, of course you've read it. Yeah. And you go into that and it's wildly different things. And and then you learn about the presence of glyphosate in our food or you learn about, I don't know, the mafia, like the mafia in like New Jersey who would, you know, crush skulls and throw them in the, the marsh. Like, but the more you learn. And I think I'm probably still decades away from it. You start to get the 3D scan of it all and right. what seems like disparate pieces, the arms of Krupp versus the history of silicon chips and Huawei, you actually start to notice these underlying veins. And then you actually start to notice just how limited the number of themes in the universe really are. Just like there's the four forces, right? Strong nuclear, weak nuclear, electromagnetic or electrostatic and gravitational. Electromagnetic. Electromagnetic. You start to realize that there's only a handful of themes throughout history. And it's a lot of them are just cliches right like early bird gets the worm or you know nice guys finish last or early to bed early to rise or a penny saved is a penny earned or you know what goes around comes around or whatever you start to see these themes play out just through hundreds of books about history across centuries and continents and it is a perhaps an arrogant thing to say but i feel like i'm on the right path to getting some sort of understanding of how it all works. I think I'm decades away, but I think I'm on the right path. And the reason why I just said all of that is so you have to break it down into, well, then how can you do it every day? Well, you have to set up a framework in order to, you're a vacuum. You've got to just absorb information. Or if you're working out, you got to go put 20 minutes in push-ups or whatever you're doing. Or if I'm doing a podcast, how do I get to episode 1008? You do two episodes a day for three years. That, and you brought it up and you read my mind. You said a theorem called expectancy, which I'm not sure if that's what this is or if it's just- Expectancy theory. No, this is infrastructure of habit. Infrastructure of habit. take on a new project. For example, when you start a new semester at school, Mm -hmm. you got all new classes, you've got all new teachers, um, and you have to invent a new way of marking out your day, a new series of how to get through campus, how to, yeah, how to, yeah, Um, that include even basics like where the hell is this class? Yeah. What time is it again? Yeah. Um, And you map out your day. So you and I both time things almost to the second and have so we can cram as much stuff as possible into the day and we start with a routine Mm -hmm. i start in the morning you start in the morning by walking the three minutes down to your gym i start in the morning by doing 1250 vibrational plankings which is sure hell tommy um and um and then every next move of the day is planned out Take uh, take all your pills, which for me takes almost a half an hour, um, and give yourself your shot. Go take a bath. Um, go to your little office setup next to the bed and um, map out what. Uh, look at all the notes that you've taken in the past twenty four hours on things that if you didn't write them down immediately, you would have forgotten. Mm-hmm. Um, and put them into the computer, primarily in the list of things to be done. 
by my assistant. Um, send her a copy of the list of stuff for her. Call her on the phone. Go oh, have her read me the stuff that's on the list and explain anything that needs explaining. Um, go put 10 eggs, raw eggs, into a blender. Get it frothy. Drink it and go back to sleep. And all that has to be done with enormous precision. Mm -hmm. um, or I start losing time. Yes. And uh, and that's desperate because when you lose time, you lose the ability to complete the things that you need to complete during the day. So you map things out down to, as I said, the second, the way that I do. Um, and uh, that is infrastructure of habit. And we humans operate on two different infrastructures, at least. One is infrastructure of habit, the daily ritual, um, the ritual that carries us through the day. Um, the second is infrastructure of fantasy, that which we imagine to be possible. Mm -hmm. And infrastructure of fantasy is in, I think, the genius of the beast. And it gives the example of the fact that in uh, the just after the Civil War in France, I mean, the Civil War in America, but in France, there was a part time stockbroker. And he really wanted to be a great author. And so he came up with an idea. There had been talk during the Civil War of reviving an old cannon style. Um, and it was this huge, huge cannon that could fling a, an object that made cannonballs look like split peas. Um, and um, he took that idea a step further. And imagine that you could build one of those cannons and put a carriage in the mouth. And then you could fire that carriage into the sky and fire it to the moon. Now, look, if you had been this guy's wife or this guy's mother or father, you would have said, look, Jules, this is insane. You want to be like the great authors um, who are guys who sketched out the human character and the human condition. And yet you are writing about this silly canon idea, which is ridiculous. And you're going to expect people to buy that. I mean, give up on it, for God's sakes. Become a full-time stockbroker and, and make enough money to support your wife and kids. Um, but no, that's not what Jules Verne did. He finished the book From Earth to the Moon, and he got it published. And it became the first classic in science fiction. So a bunch of kids grew up reading Jules Verne's book. Um, he had created an infrastructure of fantasy. And so these kids read his book. One was Silikovsky in Russia. One was a birth in, in Germany. And they that was the floor for their infrastructure of fantasy, what Jules Verne had mapped out. And each of them said there's a better way to do this than using the cannon. Um, don't put the explosives in the mouth of a cannon. Put the explosives in the back of the carriage mm -hmm. and use something the Chinese invented in 1500, um, a rocket. And so they worked out what a space program could be like um, if you used rockets. So then came two kids who grew up reading Jules Verne, first stage of the infrastructure of fantasy, and Oberth and Silikovsky, second stage of the infrastructure of fantasy. And um, and they joined a rocket club in Germany and started obsessively making um, rockets, amateur rockets. And one of them imagined what could happen if he all of a sudden got a whole mess of money and how he could build big rockets. And he lucked out. In 1933, a new head took over Germany. And when England, which he thought were his brethren, who would gladly fold in with his movement and join him as allies, when England refused him, he wanted to wipe out London. And uh, he wasn't going to be able to do it with bombers. Um, so he turned to this kid in the German rocket club and gave him a huge budget to make the rocket of his dreams. Um, the V-2 rocket, which started raining thousands of pounds of explosives on London. Um, and But 
the guy who was doing this um, had bigger dreams in mind. So um, when the Americans, when the war was ending and Germany was losing and the Americans were closing in on Pino Munde from one mm-hmm. side and the Russians were closing in on Pino Munde from the other side, he had to make up his mind. Who did he want to be captured by? The Russians or the Americans? So he put his brother on a bicycle and his brother rode the bicycle down the hill to yep. the first um, tank unit they could, he could find of Americans. And he basically said a line that would become famous in science fiction, used in science fiction for the next 40 years. Take me to your leader. Um, he said, I want to see General Eisenhower. Uh-huh. Well, that wasn't going to happen. Nonetheless, um, Werner von Braun surrendered to the Americans. And Werner von Braun built the third layer on the infrastructure of fantasy. Um, In the early 1950s, um, there was a guy who uh, used to uh, feed. He he was a commercial artist in something like Kansas City. And um, and a mouse would visit him at lunch. And he was very lonely at lunch. And if he fed the mouse, the mouse would hang around with him. And he became an animator. Um, And he made the first talking animation um and his name was walt disney and uh disney said look there's this new network called abc said this to Werner ron braun and they've given me an hour slot in prime time on sunday night i want you to put together a segment um for my show and that was terrific for Werner von braun because he had all of these images he had worked with a guy named chesley bonestell who was a set design, a set painter, um, who also designed the facade for the Chrysler building, one of the most unusual uh-huh. facades for a skyscraper ever. Um, and Chesley Bonestell really wanted to do space art. So Werner von Braun gave his ideas to Chesley Bonestell, and Chesley Bonestell illustrated them in a series of four amazing books. And now von Braun was going to be able to take this entire space program, including a um, a space station that revolved, that was a donut, like a donut mm-hmm. that you would see in later in 2001, A Space Odyssey. And he was able to hammer these home, not just with a book, not just with a series in Collier's magazine, but with television. Mm-hmm. And by the way, it was through this that Tomorrowland that Disney invented Tomorrowland, Disney and Von Braun. So this is what an infrastructure of fantasy is about. But there's more than that. You wake up in the morning and expectancy theory says you have a bunch of expectations in your brain. And if you don't meet those expectations, you become frustrated and angry. Um, If you can't meet those expectations, then everything's normal. Mm-hmm. But normal means a set of expectations for your day. I will get up and have breakfast. That assumes, first of all, that you can, uh, that you are alive the next morning, that you can do something that utterly defies one of the most basic rules of nature. I mean, this is a big fuck you to Mother Nature, that you can stand up. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> you've tried balancing a pencil on its tip. Yeah. It just doesn't work. But you do the pencil on its tip routine every day when you put your feet on the floor and get to stand up after being in bed. You and that's do. the way you conduct your waking life is defying gravity the way that a pencil can't. But you can, th- thanks to a set of software up here called your vestibular system. So um, if you know, if you suddenly discover you can't get up, that throws your day totally off. Then yeah. you have to, and if that's going to be permanent, then you have to reinvent your life. You have to reinvent your infrastructure of habit, which is what I did yeah. when I was stuck in bed for 15 years and had to reinvent my com- very concept of who in the world I was. Um, and so I founded two international scientific groups and I wrote three books while I was too weak to talk. Um, two weeks to talk for five years and stuck in bed for 15 years. You have to, at certain points, if you run into a crisis, reinvent your infrastructure of habit 
and you have to uh, revise your expectations um, for yourself. So that's that's what our initial conversation got going in my particular head. It, I think there's a kind of a a beautiful imagery there. I mean, 2001: A Space Odyssey, right? It's picking up the tool, the bomb, 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 bomb. That's just us grabbing a fork every day. You don't even think about right. it. It's the it is the culmination of like of the ape. And to us, it's just like grabbing a spoon. Right. And right now, under our very nose, uh, Elon Musk is taking one element of that infrastructure of fantasy and turning it into a reality. Now, look, the uh, last week, NASA launched um, what it called Artemis. Its Artemis moon rocket. And its Artemis moon rocket is a Franken rocket. It can only carry, well, it's only designed really to carry two people to the moon. Two people. This ginormous rocket. It costs $4.1 billion per launch. Meanwhile, Elon Musk is working on a rocket that will carry a spaceship that will carry 100 passengers. Now, with the Artemis, the NASA rocket, the NASA rocket is not really a moon rocket. It cannot land on the moon. All it can do is orbit the moon. But Elon Musk's rocket with 100 passengers can land on the moon, can take off again, and can land passengers back here on Earth. And NASA is sort of shoving it to the side. Yeah. What Elon's doing is taking the infrastructure of fantasy that started with Jules Verne and is turning it into a reality. Yes. And once, once, I mean, Elon wants to be able to run three flights of the Starship, the 100-passenger vehicle, a day. He wants to mass produce these vehicles. So I believe he has a thousand, he wants to have a thousand yeah. of them. So his whole design of his factory and of the product, the Starship, it's designed for mass production. Mm-hmm. Um, and once the Starship becomes ordinary and access to space becomes far, far more available to people, to human beings, our infrastructure of fantasy is going to use that as a floor. The way Jules Verne used the Columbiad, the the um, cannon, the giant cannon, as a floor, and standing on that floor, it's going to reach to new heights. And we're going to jump from there, right? So we have sort of the public um, expectancy, which is contained in the infrastructure of fantasy. And without an infrastructure of fantasy, a civilization perishes. Without a vision of a paradise toward which we are trying to take all mankind and liberate and free all humans on Earth, without that vision of a paradise, our civilization no longer has a reason for being and begins to shrivel, or as Proverbs put it, without a vision, a people shall perish. That the what was what's the quote? Um, that which is now proven was once only imagined. Right. Think, and <laughs> by the way, one little more note. Sure. Elon Musk wants to get the cost of the Starship, of a star, single Starship launch, to $2 million. What would that mean? Well, right now, we can only afford to launch the Orion once a year or once every two years. Be, uh, the Orion, sorry, the Orion's the name of the capsule. We can only afford to launch the Artemis mm-hmm. moon rocket once every one or two years because it costs $4.1 billion. For the price of one Artemis launch, you could buy 2,000 um, Starship launches. 2,000. Now, let's imagine that e- that Elon is wildly optimistic about his $2 million figure, and it comes in at twice that, $4 million. Okay, then for the price of one Artemis moon rocket launch, which is in a moon rocket, um, you can have... 2,000 or 1,000 launches of the Starship, which is a moon rocket and a Mars rocket. It was specifically designed for Elon's long-term goal, which is to build a city on Mars in his lifetime. 
And when it seems because like we're at an interesting point right now where specifically us, we are looking at it and it seems absurd, right? The like the the animations of a thousand starships going to Mars. It just seems you're like, what are you what are you even talking about? Like, but you have to look back to just this is what I always look back to when I try to when I look at like my own goals and I think it just seems too too fantasy like. I mean, truly, you have to think about the Wright brothers in three-piece suits on a plane that looks like it was made of particle board with like a canoe engine, and it's <laughs> that would versus like if I wanted to, I don't know, I have to find which airport, probably LAX or like or JFK. I could go buy for a reasonable amount of money a ticket on a double-decker four-engine. Airbus A380 and fly all the way to the World Cup in Qatar and watch a movie and have a couple nice meals and all right. like a flight attendant. That's absurd. That's 120 years. And right. this little science fair, you know, Kitty Hawk right flyer to a mass produced, not a not not a marvel of the world, a mass produced Airbus A380. Right. Why can't that happen again? Why can't well, here, I love this particular example of how an infrastructure fantasy works. Yeah. And the role that an achievement, the reification of something, making something real plays a part. And so does human vision and human persistence. Um, once upon a time, there was a kid growing up on a farm in Illinois. And um, it was a rough life. They, he didn't have lighting in the house. He had to do all of his studying of books um, by firelight. Um, but he turned out to be one of the most amazing scholars in the world. He absorbed books. Um, meanwhile, back in New York state, there was a governor, um, DeWitt Clinton, who had an absurd futuristic vision. The vision was we had the Great Lakes and we had the Atlantic Ocean, but there was no way of communicating between the two of them on a, uh, uh, uh reliable basis. He wanted to raise the money to build a canal that would connect the Great Lakes to the Atlantic Ocean. Now, that seems, why even bother, for God's sakes? Why are you going to milk all this money from tens of thousands of New Yorkers um, in order to build this goddamn foolish canal? You're just trying to put your name on the map, literally? Um, well... Once you had that canal, that, that you could go up the canal from the Atlantic Ocean, from New York City, to the Great Lakes, and across all the Great Lakes to the Midwest. And in the Midwest, they were astonishingly capable of growing grain. Um, it, up until then, whenever Europe... Um, had a, a bad growing season. They had a famine and thousands of people, if not tens of thousands of people died. So they would have a stock market crash, they'd have an economic crash, but most important, there would be no food for lots of people. Well, once the Erie Canal was built and in an operation, if people were about to starve in Europe, um, the Europeans could simply ship a bunch of gold over to the United States and buy a whole mess of wheat from states like Illinois, where this kid was growing up. So uh, and people wouldn't starve. So the idea of people starving during economic downturns um, has been obsolete um, for 150 years or so a little bit more than that. Um, meanwhile, this kid, reading books by firelight, saw what DeWitt Clinton was doing, coming up with an astonishing dream to make transportation easier and bind the continent together, and wanted to do the same thing himself. And he wanted to do it with railroads. At that point, railroads only went up and down the, the East Coast. Um, they, the furthest they got to the Midwest was Ohio, for God's sakes, which as far as I'm concerned is East, 
Um, there was no such thing as railroads penetrating to the Midwest, um, much less the West Coast. And um, nonetheless, this kid dreamed of stretching a railroad so that it would go all the way across the country to California, this godforsaken area that we had acquired during the war with Mexico that, according to military experts on logistics, um, was worthless, had nothing but rattlesnakes and scorpions, was not worth putting a penny into. Um, and so he became a railroad lawyer, the kid. And eventually he became president of the United States. And when he was president of the United States, he did what his role model, DeWitt Clinton, had done. And he began to pull together the money and the private enterprise needed to actually build a railroad that would cross the entire country, a transcontinental railroad. So a new technology, a new reality is the floor on which a kid just growing up stands and is able to reach out to the next impossible reality. So there is also sort of like a moral obligation in which if you stood on the shoulders and you you looked forward with imagination and you built upon the framework, it is your duty to put forward a, a fantastical new framework that you might not see completed so that the next person can stand on it because right now I'm doing right now I'm using uh, an Apple computer. I never met Steve Jobs. He never even heard of me. Right. But I'm using his stuff to interview you. So and he's using electricity and me. He's out in California and he never had anything to do with the transcontinental railroads. Right. So like there is this sort of idea of you have to keep paying it forward because the next person will stand on your shoulders and there's a, there's a beautiful selflessness to it. Sure. You can slap your name on it. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. The ego pushes us forward, but there's a selflessness to it in that you're not going to see what comes next, but you do it anyway, because you did see what happened in your own lifetime. I, there's not really a question in there. I'm kind of thinking aloud. Well, but... well, yesterday Reed Hastings, the founder of Netflix, said that Elon Musk is the most extraordinary visionary on planet Earth right now. I'm paraphrasing him. Yeah. Kara Swisher, who is a, a technology critic, um, has been doing a series of interviews on MSNBC and tearing Elon Musk apart. So have a lot of other people been tearing Elon Musk apart. And it's true. Musk has said some things that I don't like at all. Sure. Suggesting that the Russians and the Ukrainians sit down and negotiate when the last time they did this in 2014, um, the Russians used it to take a big chunk of the Ukraine uh -huh. and then only waited until they were ready to take the rest of the country. And when the common language on Russian TV right now, remember, Russian TV's personalities are all people who've been approved by Vladimir Putin mm -hmm. and everything they say is has to fit within Vladimir Putin's accepted framework. And they are saying the Ukrainian language never existed. The Ukrainian people never existed. These are Russians. They speak Russia. Um, and the Ukrainians, the Ukraine should be wiped clean of these appalling people who dare call themselves Ukrainians. Um, and it should become part of the Ruski Mir, um, the Russian world. So they say should the Balkan countries, Poland, and in fact, uh, Vladimir Putin mapped out all of his goals um, before he ever invaded the Ukraine. And it was to get all of Eastern Europe that the Soviet Union had possessed back. And then his uh, the guy he keeps around as a puppet to be president when he needs to be prime minister or prime minister when he needs to be president said, yes, we're after 
a uh, an empire that goes all the way from the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean, to Lisbon um, in Portugal. So sitting down with these genocidal people um, and giving up more of your country in order to get peace, you're not going to get peace. You're not going to get peace any more than you got peace in 2014. Or 1939. Um, so Elon Musk's comment is, uh, how can I put this? He's poorly educated on the subject. Sure. He doesn't that, know what he's talking about. That's now, also... one of the charms of Elon Musk's Twitter feed has always been that he's just another human like us. Sure. And he'll say things on which he's poorly informed. Um, but he just says things. He doesn't put himself forth as this giant who's bigger than you and me on Twitter. He puts himself as a person who's on your level and mine and shares his thoughts. Um, he doesn't act the way a CEO is supposed to act. If he did, he'd never be able to achieve the 100, the 100 passenger starship. He wouldn't be Elon Musk. He would be. Right. And I'm a Democrat. And I think Joe Biden has accomplished some astonishing things, things that people on the Democratic side said he could never achieve. The chip act, the chips. Um, chip yeah, act. the three, the three acts, the uh, the uh, subsidization of the American people to get them through COVID, a stimulus act. Um, I forget what the second one um, was. Um, a, a third one now. I mean, he's gotten across four major um, deals, and everybody said he would never be able to get anything through because um, the Senate was so narrowly divided. And so was the Congress. And yet he's gotten these astonishing things through. No Democratic president has done this or no, no president at all since Lyndon Johnson. And that was a long time ago. Great society. But but I get furious. I got furious at Biden when Elon Musk sent up the first Dragon crew capsule and took four Americans to the International Space Station. It was the first time America had been able to take Americans on American vehicles to the International Space Station. And um, Biden refused to recognize this astonishing accomplishment as a contribution to America. And um, then Biden did a, uh, a conference of some sort, a gathering on electric vehicles oh yeah and he brought in ford and he brought in a gm and he brought in probably chrysler but he did not invite elon musk who single-handedly has laid Push the base this. for electric vehicles all over the world he put um, in the framework yeah exactly um and is continuing to be the largest producer and seller of electric vehicles the man who popularized electric vehicles so uh, but so you have to recognize your genius visionaries um when they arrive you have to recognize your dewitt clintons um you have to recognize your Werner von braun's um these are people without whom we would not have an infrastructure of fantasy and a path to turning that infrastructure of fantasy into a daily everyday reality like a trip to dubai to see the world cup or stay or much like standing upright to just walk into your kitchen yeah like, exactly I, I was listening to some uh comedian of all people say it but he goes we have this idea that just because carnegie and rockefeller did what they did that it would have happened regardless that's not true no they didn't no, they're there every once in a while there is a, a, a human who is a light to all mankind Yes. And that very seldom happens. And once one of those comes along, you have to cherish him or her. Instead, Elon Musk is being stoned on a daily basis. And nobody knows where the, the direction he's going to take Twitter. No, we do know. WeChat in China. Uh -huh. People live on WeChat. Yeah. WeChat started out as a messaging app like Twitter. And then it expanded. And it became like PayPal and you could pay people on WeChat. Um, 
And then it became, God knows, like your personal secretary, mm -hmm. because you could set up appointments um, on WeChat. And now it's down to the point where it said that people live on WeChat. Well, that's the kind of grander vision that Elon Musk has for Twitter. In his view, Twitter has stagnated mm -hmm. by not advancing toward these higher goals. And, you know, once you've achieved what WeChat has achieved in China, once you've climbed the shoulders of a giant, then you have to do what the giant did. You have to take it to the next level. Yes. And Elon Musk has uniquely demonstrated that he is capable of doing such things. Now, whether he will be able to do it with Twitter, we do not know. Look at Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos has achieved something astonishing and utterly transformed the way you and I shop. Mm -hmm. And when we had three years of shutdown for COVID, we could still order anything the framework we wanted was there. and have it there within 24 hours. So it became a necessary foundation for the lifestyle we had to invent to get through the COVID crisis. Most and even the stuff after in COVID, the studio, most of the stuff yeah, in this studio amazing. was from Amazon during COVID. Right. So, so even after um, the COVID crisis, our habits, our daily infrastructure of habit has been utterly changed by Amazon. So um, Jeff Bezos thought that he was capable of creating a business structure that could do anything. Um, and his dream, since he was a child, since he was a teenager, has been to put humans in space. Mm -hmm. Take all of the industry on Earth, put it in space where it can't pollute anything, yeah. and turn Earth green and fertile and a great place for humans and for the rest of life. Um, so when he resigned his position at Amazon, he stepped over to his space company, Blue Origin. Origin. And Blue Origin has been flying one rickety tickety Mickey Mouse rocket and it's taken people to space. No, it's taken people to the edge of space for a few minutes and that's it. And his rocket to compete with Elon's rockets is something called the New Glenn. Yeah. Have we seen hide or tail of the New Glenn in the three years or so since Jeff Bezos uh, left Amazon and took on this task? No, not a thing. With great difficulty, he delivered two engines to United Launch Alliance. Well, mm -hmm. great. Elon is producing 50 engines a, 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 a month or something like that. Um, and producing two engines uh, took Jeff Bezos something like five years. Um, and now we don't know if those engines are like Elon's designed for mass production or if they're ricky ticky little engines that engineers had to put together piece by piece by piece by hand. If that's what they are, it'll take him another two years to deliver his next two engines. Um, now, we need Jeff Bezos to succeed. But yeah. if success were as easy as Elon Musk is making it look to be, then Jeff Bezos would be there too, and he's not, which means Elon is not just unique in his ability to dream. He is unique in his ability to turn his dreams into everyday realities. The, the Falcon 9 rocket has flown somewhere around 110 to 120 times so far without any i mean he, he had his last failures in the in the early stages and those are all behind him and the falcon 9 has become the most reliable space transport vehicle on earth and in earth's history and that's elon's machine now that he's working on the bigger machine the 100 passenger device um we tend to forget about the Falcon, which is sometimes delivering two or three cargoes to space a week. But Elon wants them taken off daily. And he, he had a quote, and he's never elaborated on it since. But this talk with you right now is kind of <clears throat> dusting off those brain cells. He said that his rockets planned for the far future, for beyond Mars. I think he said, we'll, quote, make the, the BFR, the, the big fucking rocket, the 100-person rocket. He said the, the craft that he's designing 
will have to be constructed in space and they will quote make the bfr look like a dinghy oh if you find that quote send it i'll to have me. to find it for you he's talking about like actual starships and who knows that might just be that might be the he's setting that up for the next elon musk well building a spaceship in space using space materials you could make the thing two miles long what a matter yeah, because there's no gravity up there. There's no, de- there's no launch. There's no delta V. You got to worry about. Right. It. You just had exactly. A, I think that's the idea is to actually use the BFR as a dinghy. Use that right. as the as the oil tanker that doesn't actually hit the port. You would just go from here to Mars, and then you have something leave the ship and go to Mars. So this big thing would never need a land. You never need to le- worry about aerodynamics or yeah, Delta V or, or mock stem or whatever the or, hell. Or um, taking a piece of building material and uh, bringing it up to 30 feet off the ground um, because there is no ground up there. Doesn't matter. And you can put anything anywhere you want on a construction project. And it doesn't need, doesn't need to look like a plane, doesn't need to have rounded edges. It can look like a middle school erector set yes exactly no aerodynamics you can hurl that baby doesn't well, matter one little more detail on elon that it's very important to understand this is a man not with just with vision for what he can do in space but with vision for humanity in 2005 i was dragged out to a space conference i did not want to go but i was prevailed on by a friend at the national science foundation by a friend at nasa um and by a bunch of people of the national space society and so they got me to come out i went out i saw elon musk speak i heard him say the following when i got out of college i asked what three things would do the most in my lifetime to change humanity and the answer to that question was the internet alternative energy and space and I went directly into the internet. So he built a, a payment Zip platform and, and sold it to PayPal and then helped build PayPal into a major, major deal. Uh, left PayPal with a billion dollars, skipped alternative energy, although he's been involved with that, and went directly to space. And at the time, he was being mocked. He had not even launched a tin can with a firecracker. And NASA was scoffing that they knew how to do things big engineering and they knew how to do it uh, safely and nobody else uh, certainly not an amateur that they'd never heard of before um would ever be able to accomplish these things i apparently have in my gut something that tells me when i'm in the presence of a superstar and it, it went off for shaka khan it went off for joan jett um, it went off for Billy Idol, um, and it went off for Elon Musk, except the message it was delivering to me is not, this is a superstar. The message it was delivering is, this is a mythic personality. Hmm. Kids will be basing their lives on his life 110 years from now. And so I had four, four, four phone conversations with Elon Musk. And uh, I had no idea why I was calling him because this was a message from my gut that my verbal brain has not yet been able to articulate. So eventually it became clear the calls were a waste of his time and he had better things to do with his time. But Elon has lived up to that gut, that gut message um, that this is a person whose life kids are going to be modeling themselves on. Uh, 100 Now it's 100 or 95 years from now. Or something like that so there is an underlying ethic and um and absolute determination to do something to expand the powers of your children um and mine or in my case grandchildren though i don't have any really um but that's what he's here for and he knows it and no one else that I've ever encountered, except Michael Jackson, has had that sense of commitment to a generation that hasn't been born. Wow. That's... And again, it's for... For all 
his flaws and all the and Elon Musk does has does have them, as do we all. You do kind of see that. I mean, by using internet based from space. Yeah, I mean he is providing for better or worse, I would say for better, an ability to speak speak and express yourself. How he's laying a he's laying a framework for the framework of imagination. Because the infrastructure of fantasy. Part of the infrastructure of fantasy is also having stupid ideas, myself right. included. But the thing is, is you have to cycle through them all to find the one that works. You gotta you gotta spin the wheel, you gotta spin the slot machine to see which ones work. You have to have this field of potentiality which is twitter from starlink and it can't be censored every idea has to get out including the dumb ones hey hey ukraine sit down with russia but that also means the next elon musk is gonna have an idea and that that open field of discussion will exist and it will be for something that you and i if we heard it we'd probably scoff at much like we are looking back now at the military generals who and the logisticians who said California was worthless. Now California's got a bigger GDP than like most of the world. Actually, it does have the world's biggest economy. Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> point in my case in point. Exhibit A. Right. Yeah, that, well, that and 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 remember, Elon is saving the Ukraine. Because the Russians, are, the Russians have been practicing the art of electronic warfare um, for decades. Um, and they thought they were going to be able to wipe out all Internet connectivity in the Ukraine and render the Ukraine helpless. And along came Elon with Starlink and gave them the Internet connectivity they use to pinpoint um, Russian troops and Russian uh big machinery like tanks um and they send their drones the drones do reconnaissance um using constant internet access and then on the basis of the positioning they aim their artillery um and they often wipe out um that russian equipment so they're able to do this i mean when for a day their starlink went out they were in serious trouble yeah, because in a war, you need to be on top of things second by second by second. Mm -hmm. But Elon Sterling has saved them again. Joe Biden, my president, who I voted for and will vote for again in 2024. Um, took away a billion dollars that was supposed to go to Elon Musk to provide rural access to the Internet and access for all of those who are Internet deprived and instead sent that money elsewhere. That is stupid. Um, the justification seemed to be that um, uh, signing up for Starlink costs too much money, and the people that Biden wanted to reach couldn't afford that. Well, if he's giving a billion dollars, he can pay it through yeah. that billion dollars, for God's sakes. Nobody else has anything like Starlink. Starlink, the last time I counted, was well over 3000 satellites nobody else on earth has anything like that there's also a um there's also a beauty in that uh, <clears throat> i've interviewed a, a brandon weikert several times he's a great author and his his new book uh, shadow war about iran he talks about the uh the misconceptions people have about jimmy carter that's kind of you know uh spineless or, or limp and they talk about like the speeches he went and gave in China and I think Iran and talked in a way or and as well as uh, in, in I think Cuba. But the speeches he gave and was able to, uh, without hesitation, denounce dictatorship and uh, champion the, the, the liberties of a free society. And he was able to do so because, uh, for lack of a better term, he had the, the big swinging dick of the U.S. military behind him. Right. There's also kind of that, you know, they're not going to let 
anything Elon touched because he's the biggest contractor for the DOD, specifically for Space Force and Air Force Space Command, which I think has been merged with Space Force. But you can kind of see, like, coming from that, that projection of force, Russia's not going to touch a Starlink satellite. They're going to have a problem because traditionally a satellite constellation has been a big deal if it has six satellites. Oh, yeah. Six satellites you can wipe out. The Chinese have had rockets yeah, aimed at our satellites. 2008, for, right? That for test. Roughly 10 years, just ready to take out our satellites, all of them, and render us blind. Um, my, in one of the groups I run, um, we have uh, the former governor of New York State. We have the former head of the House Science Committee, and we have a three-star general. And the three-star general says, if there's an alert, you're a pilot, um, and you're in an airbase, um, and there is an alert that you need to scramble immediately because there's incoming stuff, um, you can run out to the uh, uh, tarmac, jump into your cockpit, and try to turn the key, and nothing will happen. If you have no internet connectivity, your plane will not fly. In the days of six six satellites being a big deal as a satellite constellation, that internet could be wiped out totally. Now that there are 3,000 satellites and Elon is aiming for 14,000 satellites, yeah, just try. You know, you might with uh, one of your explosive devices um, take out two or three of these things, but we've got several thousand left. Um, so the Starlink is exactly what the military would have wanted if yeah. it had uh, uh, the uh, the gall to dream. To have the gall to dream. Yeah. Yeah, to... You have to harness that person. Right. Right, exactly. exactly. And which means recognizing and uh, and showing admiration, giving credit um, to that person. Now, Elon seems to work very well without getting... Um, credit from the president of the United States. Thank goodness. But it's meant he's gone a little wacky politically. It'll he's, get you. He's gone to the right politically in a way that I, a Democrat, at least find disturbing and obnoxious. Sure. But you got to almost wonder, is this a necessary, if you and I, because right now we look back at Carnegie, Rockefeller, whoever, and we, again, we see them, in the neat, concise, bookended history. Maybe in 200 years, we'll be looking back at Elon and they'll be going, and it will be like an accepted thing. Like, no, part of the efficacy of the genius is they don't get recognized. Maybe that's right. a fire. Maybe that's another fuel source to push profit, that. Extra. Profit is without honor in his own land. Maybe there's just that's that extra 1% that goes, I'm doing all this, and even the fucking president won't give me a high five. All right, I'm going to do even more. Maybe that's what you need. Maybe it's the, the cold father withholding approval. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Who, and maybe it's not. Maybe he turns into a psychopath because of it. I have, I have no idea. I'm not trying to stake a claim. But wait, we're at 7 Eleven. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a horrible host. I kept you 11 minutes longer. I apologize <laughs> for nothing. Howard, I, 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 I truly adore talking to you. It, it, it gets me excited. It really, it reminds me why I'm doing everything. I, I'm 32. I still have a life of plans ahead of me. And sometimes I get lost in it. I'm like, what am I doing? I'm doing a podcast. Like, why shouldn't I go get shit faced tonight? And then I'm like, if I got shit faced tonight, I couldn't work tomorrow. And I couldn't. And there is a value in that we are playing a game where we get to contribute to the progress of humanity. That's not some hallmark line. Like we get to, whether you're contributing to a sail on a ship of the line or whether you're contributing to Starlink, like you get to push this machine forward. It's the greatest video game that we could ever play. And today's talk definitely refreshed that in my mind to constantly push towards improvement and evolution. And so for that, I thank you. Well, a good statement. Next time I'll plug the Howard Bloom Institute and its uh, Evolving Western Civilization Initiative, which is all about this. 
Beautiful. But that's for next time. Meanwhile, we got to send me back to work. Beautiful. Yeah, we do. And it's it's 713. I'm 13 minutes over. I'm a horrible person. Unforgivable. <laughs> you're not a horrible person. We all think you're you're incredible. Well, Howard, you know I love you. You are my you're my honorary grandfather. And uh, whether or not you accept that, I've already I've already placed it on I'll your shoulders. I'll accept uh, with with uh, with glee. Yeah. Howard Bloom, I'll put the links to all of your stuff in the description, all your books, all your social media, all your websites. I'll email you this and uh, you find me a date for our next episode and it's yours and we will plan out that one. And I can't wait for it. Hey, terrific. So I'll see you again soon. Yes, sir. Mr. Howard Bloom, I love you, brother. Thank you so much. God bless everybody. Stay safe. The one and only.